A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this episode is sponsored by a listener in honor of the tour companies, the tour groups, and this, of course, the tour guides who are not able to go on any tours uh, as of now because of the uh, current situation, unfortunate situation. And uh, we wish them all well and hopefully for a change for the better in the near future. So I just want to start off by making a a couple of references to previous episodes. Uh, First of all, we had an exciting episode around Purim time of reading some letters uh, from listeners. Just want to clarify because it generated a tremendous uh, response. Um, And uh, I want to clarify that it was supposed to be all in good humor and uh, did definitely not intend to um to, to you know to uh anything personal or anything some people took it a little too seriously it was all in the spirit of Purim and it was a joke and and supposed to be funny um one of them that generated a huge response was uh I spoke about um, I read a letter about the modern Orthodox G'dayla Yisrael and, and uh, many listeners had their input that Rabaran Lichtenstein definitely should be added to the list. So, okay, so then we have three on the list, so that would be good. The truth is, is that his son now is the Rosh Hashiva in Tarvadas. I wasn't even sure if we can count um, him in which camp, which team is he on, the modern Orthodox or not. Either way, that was also a joke. Um, the I just want to make another reference to another episode, um, a fascinating story. We had it recently about Sochachov, the Sochachov dynasty. And a couple of days after that episode was posted, a fellow came over to me in shul. This wasn't a letter it sent in. This was uh, an encounter in shul. And he says, I just listened to your episode on Sochachov, and I want to tell you something. You mentioned that the Rebbe, who became the Rebbe following the war, mentioned in the episode that Reb David, the Chaste David of Sachachov, died in the Warsaw Ghetto, and he had a brother who had moved to uh, Eretz Yisrael, Reb Chanachenech, before the war. So he became the Rebbe of Sachachov. When he died, 
his son, Rabbi Nachum Shloima, became the Rebbe of Sochetshav. And I mentioned in that podcast that Rabbi Nachum Shloima, unfortunately, died in a car accident at the young age of 34, before he was really able to pick up the Hasidus in 1969. And um, and then much later on, in the 1980s, his son, who's the current Sochetshav Rebbe, became the Rebbe in Sochetshav. So this guy comes over to me in shul and says, you mentioned that the Rebbe Rebbe Nachum Shloimo died in a car accident. I said, yes, I did. He said, I want to tell you something. My grandfather was the one who was driving him. I was like, oh, taken aback. I said, oh, so uh, what was that all about? So he said uh, his grandfather was a Sachachav Rechassid, and he was from Warsaw. He was actually close with the Kajlikov Rav, who we mentioned also, Rabbi Frommer, later the Rashiva Yeshiva Schachme Lublin, who was killed by the Nazis. And this guy was a Sachachav Rechassid, and he survived the Warsaw Ghetto, survived the Holocaust, moved to Eretz Yisrael, tried to rebuild his life, and he was the Sachachavar Rebbe, the new young Sachachavar Rebbe's driver, and he was a little bit of a, a, bit of, a bit of a careless move, and he ran through a stop sign, and he said it was completely his fault, and he, he used to talk about it later in life, how it was his fault, and he, uh, because he had run through the stop sign, the Rebbe was killed, and he never recovered from that guilt. He um, he had to do community service, and his uh, license was taken away from him for many years, but even when they gave back his license, he never went behind the wheel again. He only died a few years ago. For the next 50, 60 years, he never again drove a car. He, he be, was depressed for a long, long time, he, he, this guy was telling me how he used to go in the car with his grandfather. His grandfather w- would never allow anyone to talk to the driver, whoever was driving him. He would never allow the driver to talk or to not be completely focused on the road. He was completely traumatized. It changed his life. Um, he used to donate all his money that he had to Sachachov. Um, he remained close with the family. The family went ahead and forgave him. They he remained very close with the family. The wife of the Sachachavar, the children, they forgave him. They understood. and uh, But he never really recovered from it. He willed in his will. He willed his assets to Sachachav, not to his kids. Incredible. He, literally for the rest of his life, he uh, never got over that. So it was incredible to uh, hear that straight from the guy's uh, grandfather. Uh, unfortunate story, sad story, and a tragic one, but uh, that's um, that's part of the history as well. So what I would move over to is is uh, something that you know what we're not going to be doing this year. Um, I just saw uh, a video someone sent me just the other day, uh, just Arab Shabbos actually. You know we're on Mighty Shabbos Malava Malka episode. And Friday afternoon, I got a, a short clip of some the one brave person who went to Lezhensk uh, before the yard site of the Rebbe of Meilach, the Naim Melech, and he was showing the empty streets, the empty um, oil of the Naim Melech, the empty everything, and in a place where it's, you know, sh- shocking. Usually the yard site draws about, you know, tens of thousands, probably close to 20,000 visitors, and I'm usually there with the group And at that time, and before the war, even more came. You know, I always tell the groups that uh, the amount of people that you see now doesn't come close to what it was before the war. And here it's empty because of the unfortunate 
situation going on, and hopefully that will change. So in honor of that, and the fact that no one's going this year to the Kever and the yard side of the Naimali Melech on Chafal of Adar, so we'll talk a little bit about the Kever of the Naimali Melech, and um, in general, Tzadikim's Kfarim, the idea of, of going to the Tzadik's Kever uh, comes, you know, a long tradition in Hasidus, a long tradition even before Hasidus, and has antecedents in the long history of the Jewish people, but Hasidim definitely popularized the idea, even right before Hasidim, the Makubalim and Sfas, the Kabbalists in the 16th century in Sfas, they already made it a, a popular visit, a pilgrimage to go pray, to go do all kinds of uh, mystical or Kabbalistic, uh, uh, stuff at the grave sites of holy people, and the Hasidim came and developed it even more. And they're ready from the beginning of Hasidus. I mean, they have in all stages of Hasidus. You have, uh, you have. We'll get to the Baal Shem Tov in a second, but in in the Mitla Rebbe, the second Rebbe of Chabad, he used to talk about and write about uh, going to his father's kever and the importance of going. His father, the Alter Rebbe, the Baltani's kever. And the importance of going to Tzadik's Kever, the Bnei Sashar of Rabbeinu of Dinov, in the next generation, the third and fourth generation of Hasidus, developed the idea of visiting Kivrei Tzadikim. Of course, we know that in Breslov uh, became the central component of the Hasidus of going to the Tzadik's uh, grave site, and um, Reb Nachman of Breslov famously said that the burial places of the Tzadikim ha- are like the are like the land of Israel. They're wholly like the land of Israel itself and uh, with all the ramifications of that. And and it already starts by the Baal Shem Tev. Um, we have that Reb Nachman of Haradenka, who was one of the closest students and earliest students of the Baal Shem Tev, the grandfather of Reb Nachman, one of the first Hasidim of, of, uh, of the Baal Shem Tev to move to Eretz Yisrael. He himself is buried in Tveria. But before he goes to Eretz Yisrael in 1764, it's only four years after the Baal Shem Tev uh, died, he goes and he prays and takes leave and, and davens by the Baal Shem Tev's kever in Mezhebish. And we have that uh, at that early time already he becomes, the Baal Shem Tev's kever becomes a place of pilgrimage. The grandson of the Baal Shem Tev, Rav Baruch of Mezhebish, who moves to Mezhebish, he takes control of the Baal Shem Tev's kever and he uses that as as part of his position as Rebbe. He's the grandson and the one who's connected to his grandfather's burial site. He even decides who he lets in and who he doesn't let in. And in his famous dispute with the Alter Rebbe, one of the confrontations they have that he and Rav Shneir Zalman of Liadi, the Alter Rebbe he has, is that he blocks him from going into Davin by the Baal Shem Tev. And the Alter Rebbe says he was unable to go because he had the key and he couldn't go in, and he uh, he blocked the access to the Baal Shem Tov's cover. So we see that it, it already had become a central component uh, at that at that time. In fact, the maskil, the very famous, one of the most famous maskilim, Yosef Peril from Tarnopol, in in 1816. It's also early on. He makes fun of Hasidim going to as maskilim did. They one of the, they they went out on an all-out war against Hasidim. One of the things Peril made fun of, and he was one of the biggest enemies of Hasidim at the time, was they made fun of the custom of going to the Kvarim. And he mentions, 1816, less than 30 years after the Naim Elimelech died, he mentions 
that they go to Lizhensk. He mentioned that one of the destinations that many Hasidim go to and then to visit their, their uh, tzaddik, their Rebbe over there in Lizhensk. So we see that already it had become, Lizhensk had become a destination. Um, you know, you know, Lizhensk became on the art side, especially not only on the art side, especially on the art side of the Chafal of Adar, and it was, uh, you know, and uh, they they made a whole event out of it, and to drink lechayims, and to even to eat, and it happens to be by Lizhensk in particular, it wasn't even only, it wasn't only Jews, it wasn't only Hasidim, it was even non-Hasidim, you know, believed in going to the Naimali Melech Lizhensk. But also wasn't was even non-Jews. There were Christians who came to pray to get salvation or whatever it was at the at the site of the Naimali Melech, the Rabbi Rabbi Melech. I have to understand the central role that the Naimali Melech. What what happened? Why specifically Lizhensk, uh, so much more than almost any other? Excuse me, almost any other uh, place. It's, he plays a very central role in the development of the Hasidic movement. He's considered the second Baal Shem Tev. He's the father of all mainstream Hasidists today, of Galicia, of Hungary, of of course of Polish Hasidists, the three main centers of Hasidists, especially of mainstream Hasidim today, um, in the last century, they all you know come from different branches of uh, of the from students and, and later generations of students of the of the Rebbe Reb Meilach of Lezhensk. And there's a lot really to say about him, and this uh, this episode is not about the Rebbe of Meilich per se. It's about going to visit his kever, going to Davin there, and going on his yard site. It's not really about him. We could perhaps devote another one or two or three uh, about him and his role in the development of Hasidus, which we'll save for another time. Now I want to focus on on uh, how it came to be that his his kever. Um, became such a great uh, destination. Lezhensk never became a dynasty. That's the first thing to mention about it. And there's nothing in the town. It's a small town. There was never a dynasty. There was never a major Hasidus there. Not from his descendants. Not in the town. It's in in the town. I'm saying it's a small shtetl even today. And um, he dies in 1787, which is pretty early on in the history of the movement. And the only thing that's left in the town, besides for the Jewish community, obviously, was his kever. As far as the Hasidus was his, was concerned, there's nothing else there. Even his son, who was a big tzaddik, the great Rebbe Lazar, or in Galicia they said Rebbe Luzer, um, who's buried next to him, he never became a major leader with a major following. He actually publishes his father's sefer, the Naimali Melech. It was not published or even written by him in his lifetime. And... Um, his son, Rebbe Luzer, publishes it, but his son doesn't become a founder of a dynasty either. His student, the Nehemiah students in other cities are the ones who spread his Hasidus. So Lezhensk itself doesn't have the dynasty. Now, he becomes this universal figure. Now, again, if he had become a dynasty, then it would have been less possible to have. And the fact that he doesn't become a dynasty He's able to be seen by later, genera- seen by later generations of Hasidus as a fatherly figure, as a universal figure that everyone can connect to and that Lezhensk can become a destination. It doesn't mean that you're showing allegiance to a specific Rebbe or a different Sadiq or someone local. There is no one local. And that's part of the idea why it's possible for it to become uh, so popular. It becomes part of the religion and the ritual of Hasidus in many, many areas. 
um, that that that, that Lezhenska is seen as the center. In addition, in addition, um, again touching on who he was and his contribution to the development of the movement, he's the one who develops to what we know today as the most dominant feature of Hasidus, which is the Torah Satzadik, what we would say in 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 basic English, practical tzaddikism. He he's the one who develops the idea of how much to connect and to work on connecting to the tzaddik and the role that the tzaddik plays in helping the Jewish people connect to their father in heaven and what he has to do, provide for his chassidim, for his followers, and how they can connect to him. All that is developed. He's one of the main players who develops that in chassidus, in the chassidic thought, and in practice also. It's not just in thought, it's not just in ideology. It's actually how he carries it out in practice. So it makes sense also that the father of this type of hiskashris of connection to the tzaddik sustains itself even after he dies and people come to connect to the tzaddik and connect to him in Lezhensk, even following his passing, especially on his yard site, which has a special significance. There's another reason which is much more practical and historical, which is why we'll talk about it here, is that it's geographical location. From the mid-19th century, if we follow the development of Hasidus from the mid-19th century and on, um, the Hasidic movement is no longer in its cradle. It's not no longer, it's not the center. The center is not in the mid middle of the Ukraine. There definitely is loads of Hasidim there and dynasties and Rebbes and everything, but that the shift is westward and the center of Hasidus is now in Poland and Galicia. And that's where it is. In the Ukraine, there's much less. So if we would think that the father of the movement, the one who's seen, which is another story, if he actually was the founder, or he's just seen as the founder, the Baal Shem Tev, um, in Mezhebish, Mezhebish is far. It's far from most people. Lezhensk, as we see on our trips, whenever we go, it's really on the way. It's in between Lublin and Krakow. It's in the smack in the middle of Galicia. It's still in the center of everything, uh, even as we speak. And uh, and it's just much more convenient to get to. So the Naim el is definitely going to be a much bigger destination because it's not easy to get around in those days, in the 1800s. And therefore, to get all the way to Mezhebish, which is far from everyone, it's just impractical. And if we step ahead to the 20th century, it makes even more sense. In the interwar period, Mezhebish is in the Soviet Union. Mezhebish is behind the Iron Curtain. It's not just hard to get to, it's inaccessible. It's impossible to get to. And here we're in independent Poland, where there's 3,300,000 Jews, and a lot of them, a nice significant amount of them, are Hasidim. And there's Hasidim in Hungary, and there's Hasidim in other countries, in Romania. And, 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 uh, and the main, the main cover that's easy and nearby to get to, and especially now there's trains, is the Naimali Melech. So it just makes sense uh, of how that develops, as opposed to a place like the uh, Baal Shem Tev. Um, if we talk a little bit about the actual place itself, it's very interesting that the Tefer Shleim of Radomsk, Shleim of Radomsk, the founder of the Radomsk dynasty, is the one who built the original Oihel. Oihel is also a Hasidic feature. Yeah, most Kvarim back in the day, most even of big, big Tzadikim, did not have an oil, um, a kind of like a building, a structure over the the uh, tombstone of where the tzaddik is, and uh, and and uh, it becomes a feature of Hasidus, 
And, and the Radomsker is the one who builds the original one. He actually comes later on, but he's the one who builds the, the permanent structure, and he builds it in a way. He's a Kayin, all the Radomsker Rebbes were Kayhanim, and it very much bothered him. How could he not go to Lezhensk? How is it possible to not go to Lezhensk? You have to go to Davin by the Rebbe of Milech. So he goes ahead and he builds the oil in a way that there would be a side room, that there would be a special path. And he builds it in a way that he himself, that Kayanim, would be able to go and it would be accessible for them. Unfortunately, during the war, like most other places, the oil was destroyed and the path was destroyed and today Kayanim cannot go, but he built the original oil. And as the legend goes, the uh, Tfer Shleima, who's buried out in Radomsk, we also go to, um, he, he, his, uh, the original structure on his oil survived the war, and to the best of our knowledge, it is the only oil over a Hasidic Rebbe in Poland whose oil was not completely destroyed during the war. And, uh, and as, as the explanation goes, someone who had the privilege and the merit to build the oil over the Noemeli Melech in that merit, his oil was not destroyed many years later during the war, and it survived. So the Radomsk oil survived, even though the one that he built over the Naim did not. So there you have a little bit of a story about the oil of the Naim Elimelech. But if we move along to to uh, the um, one of the students of the Naim Elimelech, the Ma'ar Veshemesh, Reb Kalman Halevi Epstein. So he used to go to his... Rabbi's also daven there, and he would, um, ironically, he doesn't have an oil in his cavern. We go to his, in, in Krakow, we go, he's buried in the new, new Jewish cemetery in Krakow, a couple of blocks from the old one. Now the Baba Rebbe used to say that the Ma'ar Vishemesh is the Sefer, the Sefer that he wrote is such a classic book of, of Hasidic thought and Torah. The Baba Rebbe said it's the Shulchan Aruch, it's the basic Code of Hasidus, the Shulchan Aruch of Hasidus. So in Krakow, we go to the old Jewish cemetery where we visit and daven by the Ramah, who wrote the Shulchan Aruch, the Ashkenaz Shulchan Aruch. It's incorporated into the regular Shulchan Aruch today. And then we walk two blocks away to the Marva Shemesh in the new Jewish cemetery, and uh, we go to the Shulchan Aruch of Hasidus. We catch both Shulchan Aruchs in one little visit. But since he's buried in Krakow, the Krakow Jewish community did not allow an oil to be built. That was the custom of the Krakow Jewish community. So even though he was a Hasidic rabbi, he does not have an oil. But ironically, he would go to the the um, his rabbi, his his uh, the Naimali Melech. He would go and he um, he would prostrate himself. It's what's called and known as a concept and has kabbalistic and mystical meaning, which I'm not uh, familiar with. Of hishtatchus of of completely lying down on the kever, on the, the grave of the tzaddik, of the Naimali Malach. And he once asked his, uh, he left instructions to his students who came with him, who accompanied him to remain outside. He's going alone into the aisle, and he left instructions not to be disturbed whatsoever under any circumstances. So they are outside, he goes in, he does his thing, and a couple hours pass, and they're getting nervous, getting a little more nervous, and finally they're just freaking out. So they go in, and they see... He's completely out cold, lying on the cover of the Naim of the Melech. And they're not sure what happened to him. They're a little nervous. They're scared. They start shaking him. They start yelling. And finally, he breaks out of his, his uh, whatever, you know, uh, trance that he was in. And he gets very upset. 
And he said, why did you take me out? I told you not to bother me. If you would have left me alone for another few minutes, then I would have been able to join up with my Rebbe. That's the end of the story. And uh, of course, I don't have any good explanation for the story, but it's a little spooky. It's a little hoogy-boogy. But, um, but that's the, 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 we're talking about great people, holy people who, who were able to, uh, connect in, uh, very powerful ways in the upper realms of, uh, in the upper spheres of the world. Now, when we go to Lezhensk, so there's a special song that the Naim Alimalach, the Rabbi Ramalach composed, that we sing to, we dance to, a special dance that goes with that song. And since uh, the Jewish people have sustained enough problems and troubles in their long exile, so I'll spare you another one of having me sing. Um, but, you know, go find out what the song of the Naim Elimelech is, and it's a great one. But the dance fits in with the Naim Elimelech. One of the things that he represented and taught and spoke about was love of a fellow Jew, Zavavas Yisrael, his prayer, his famous tefillah of Adarab Atein Bilibenu, of loving our fellow Jew, so the dance that is da- danced to the song that he composed is a dance where two, uh, this is already a long, long and old tradition in, in Hasidim, in Poland, in Galicia, they would sing the song of the Naimali Melech and they would dance this special dance to his, to, to, to this song. Where there would be two pairs of Jews facing each other dancing and they would be holding hands and they, one of them would hold one pair would hold their hands high and the other would dance through them. They would be holding hands and dance underneath them. And then they would turn around and the other pair would go in the same way and back and forth, back and forth. I hope that made sense. But you can imagine, and you could even try it at home with your friends and do the dance yourself. But the symbolism in this dance is very powerful because what the Neil Melch was trying to teach was that in order to dance this dance, you have to hold someone else's hand. And that someone else is not you. He's different than you. He might be a different height. He might look different. But you're holding his hand. And you're going together. And the other people who are allowing you in, they have to raise their hands and allow you into their lives. Which is also something that's not so obvious sometimes. Not only that, but in order to get through their upraised hands, the pair that's dancing towards them has to lower themselves and bend down. So when they're approaching someone else, they have to give up something of themselves. They have to kneel down, bend down a little bit to be able to join up into someone else's life. And so on and so forth. There's a lot of Hasidic symbolism to the dance and it's very powerful. And in fact, um, it's one of the highlights of our visit usually, even if we don't go on the art site, even if it's gone throughout the year. I was just recently, a few weeks ago, at a bris of someone in the neighborhood, and uh, he was someone who was on my trips. I felt like I had to go to the bris. A couple of years ago, he was on a trip with me. So, uh, actually, last year, excuse me, that's part of the story. Last year, he was on a trip with me, and he um, he says, to, I remember on the trip that he was like this real, like, you have sometimes that guy on the trip who's like this real misnagit, a real litvak, and, uh, you know, probably all his grandparents were Hasidim, but he, you know, you know, it's his education and culture, whatever it is. And he says, everywhere on the trip, he says to me, oh, another Rebbe, another Hasid, I'm not a Hasid, what's all this Hasid? There's too much Hasidus. You know, and I told him, look, you signed up for a trip that the route, the itinerary is Galicia, Poland, what do you expect? You know, 
This, the the Velazhin is not anywhere near here. What can I tell you? So this was the last guy I was expecting to hear this from. So I'm by his bris and he tells me, you know, that our trip was just about nine months ago, you know? So I said, you're right. So he says to me, um, you know, as I was walking into, as the bus was pulling into Lezhensk, I was, I was on the phone with my wife and I told her we're heading into Lezhensk, I have to get off the phone. And she says, oh, if you're going to Lezhensk, put in a special feeler that we should have a boy this year. You know, and he, you know, I don't want any misunderstandings because I know where the stories like this can end up with all the added on details and exaggerations. He has a bunch of kids, boys, girls, whatever. But this just, they, I guess they wanted another one. So that's what his uh, his wife said. So he says, okay. And he, he being a non-believer, he goes ahead anyway, as his wife told him to do. And he davens at the Naimali Melech for another boy. And sure enough, nine months later, I was at the bris a few weeks ago. And there you go, he had another boy. I was, a few times I had on trips where guys told me, you know, I remember a particular one case where a guy was like a real cold, it was hard for him to connect, you know, he was trying, he was trying in every place we visited, and afterwards at the end of the trip he said, I'll be honest, I don't know what it was, something in the air, maybe it was something you said, maybe it was a combination of both, the only place I felt something, I felt a connection, I felt something, I'm not even sure what that something is, was in Lezhensk by the Naimali Malach. And the best one I had was when I took a group of uh, secular college students on a trip to Poland. And we asked them at the end of the trip, their summary, thoughts, feelings, anything, that their highlights of the trip. And one college student got up and said, I'm not kidding. And he said, and he said, uh, it was in Lezhensk that I realized that Judaism also has spirituality. And that's what he's taking away from the trip. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and hopefully soon, once again, tours and trips to places of Jewish history. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.